Right now we're going to bring up John Hartshorn from Decono, Colorado, because he has another important question. Well, while we're getting technologically up to speed, uh, it's certainly a privilege to be here. Um, I knew this was going to be beautiful country. My son, Cody, was here about three or four years ago and spoke, and um, he told me that uh, it was one of the retreats that I knew I hadn't been to and sometime I ought to go. So here I am. So uh, it may be Dan's fault that uh, you have to put up with me now. Actually, I, when I saw the agenda, I, re I realized how insightful Dan was because he has me following Bill and Jerry. Um, so you need something pretty light and fluffy. And then... Um, then Lee and Winston will be coming up, so you're going to have to gear back up again. So I'm in the middle, and uh, just glad to have the chance to be here with you men. As the title of another important question would suggest, there are certainly a lot of other important questions in the Bible, and we're going to spend a lot of time on questions, and like the rest of these guys, probably have too much material. Uh, but I am going to try to do it in about three different sections. I think they're interrelated, but also maybe a little distinct. And so there are going to be time for questions, hopefully. I see that we have one right afterwards for 15 minutes. I'm hoping you'll ask Bill and Jerry most of those questions. So if you'll join with me in prayer, we'll dive in. Our Heavenly Father, um, it's just goes without saying that uh, this is a day that you have made and that we should rejoice and be glad in it. That you've appointed us to be here at this time. That you have a plan and a purpose for us. That you have defined and designed the relationship that you want us to have with you. And that all is going to take place as we focus on Christ and let your Holy Spirit work in and through us. Ask that he would be here to monitor the oversight of the time. I know from your word that your power is perfected in weakness. I know little of your power in totality, but I know a lot about my weaknesses. So I would ask that you would come as you can and will uh, by your spirit to watch over us as we look to your word in Christ's name. Amen. So, again, there's some significant questions and questions behind the questions, and what I want to do is take some of the more, I think, probably well-known ones and just make some comments on those, and then eventually <clears throat> I will hopefully get to the point of what the other important question is. But the first three of these are all found in Genesis 3, probably very familiar to you. The first one, this is right after they ate of the forbidden fruit, and God's walking in the garden, and he says to Adam, where are you? And if you know that passage, you know Adam gave him the typical answer that we are likely to give, which is just some similar response to I was hiding. But I would suggest to you, obviously, that that was not the question that God was asking to be answered, because he knew exactly where Adam was, as he knows exactly where you and I are. So how do we answer that question to ourselves? That's the question. It's a deeply spiritual question. And if you look at it in a spiritual way and ask yourself, where am I? 
then I think you can begin to move forward in some of these other questions. But it's a simple matter of how, have you given it thought? If so, how much? And in what way? Who told you is the second question. That's also addressed to Adam, and it's followed by who told you you were naked. And so that's, that's another one that uh, is a good question. Who told you? Who told you the secret to success was hard work? or other sayings or axioms, etc., that you turned into convictions, or your understanding of truth. In my terminology, I think we're unintentional impersonators. I think Thomas Sowell says that even better because he says we blindly copy. What have you done? Ask of Eve, the woman. Actually, same question that Samuel asks Saul. What were the major reasons for Eve's decision? Have you ever really stopped and just listened to what she was saying was how she got to the point she got to of eating forbidden fruit? Very telling, very applicable to us. How do we view our sin? That's been touched on a little bit. How much time do you and I spend considering how God views our sin? So that kind of leads to the idea of, well, and this has already been touched on, but the value of remembering things past. Doesn't God tell us that old things have passed away and new things have come? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. What about Psalm 103, 112? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then I think a key one is Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Where it says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to the, forward to the what lies ahead. So a question you might want to consider is, what does Paul suggest that we forget? Because isn't that the tension? We're trying to figure out what God wants us to forget and what he wants us to remember. And the challenge is, and this was alluded to in Jerry's talk, that we're inundated with cultural Marxism. And one tenet of that, as you probably know, is that the past history means nothing. Only the now and the, and the moving forward from here is all that's relevant. So I think we struggle in this area of God asking us to remember. And you, you'll note if you walk through the Old Testament, he tells that to the, ask that of the nation of Israel or tells it to him over and over and over again. So what are we supposed to move forward on? Well, that's it. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. So we have to do one to do the other, right? We have to, we have to forget some things to move on so we can do some things. But you've got to be very careful how you, how you go about what it is you forget. So those, those admonitions, excuse me, notwithstanding, God places some importance on Jeremiah. So we're going to, Dave's going to help me not mess up putting these slides up for you and reading them because I constantly think about, I was just thinking about this as I was sitting there, and the early church, you had someone reading from a parchment, and we didn't have PowerPoints, and we didn't have Bibles, and we didn't have all this in front of us, and they had to be able to grasp that. So I think there's value in both seeing and hearing, so that's what Dave's going to keep me from messing up by doing it for me. So the first one is um, Jeremiah 
6.16. Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Think about that. Ask for the ancient paths and walk in them. And what was the response? We won't do that. How do we respond? And one just like it, in case we missed that one, is Jeremiah 18.1. For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths, to walk in the bypaths, not on the highway. I live right near an interstate, and I ride my bike on a frontage road, and I'm constantly thinking about this verse. Are you on the, are you on the main path, or are you, are you on a byway? It's pretty easy to think you're on the main path and not be there. The Bible has a lot to say about that thing. So this one, this one I really appreciated what Dan did, because he led right into this. It's this 1 Corinthians 4-7. It's going to come up on the screen. And it's actually a combination of three questions. And when Dan said these two, he said two questions last night. And it's very telling because most of the time when people say to me, well, you know what it says there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, they'll say, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, it's what I call taking pieces of passages. That first question that wasn't asked seems to be very important to me, which is, who regards you as superior? And the answer I found when I thought about it was it was in the mirror because I don't think many people probably spend a lot of time thinking about whether I'm doing okay in that category or not, but seemingly I do. So we can't move on well to the second question until we ask the first one. But if you do move on, what do you have that you do not receive? How do you ask yourself that question and not have that raise some sense of thanksgiving and gratitude and so forth, for what all God has done and is doing so that we can even, for instance, be here and think about these things. And then finally, if you, do not if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, how do we boast? Well, in a variety of ways. Approval of men. More importantly, when you ask yourself those questions, don't, don't try to think about what it is I'm going to say, how, how am I going to respond? The question is, What's your behavior suggest? That's where the proof of the pudding is, right? So, the one that, that Jerry just mentioned, I find interesting. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6.46. That's a very straightforward question. And it has a very straightforward answer. How do you answer it? Why? What are some of the reasons that we do not do what he tells us to do. Is anything can be as simple as, well, what's taking up your time and energy? Aren't those the two greatest resources God has given us? How are you, how are you allocating them? Those are the kinds of questions that I hope these kinds of questions bring up. Do you believe this? This is a good one. This is from John eleven twenty six, 26b. And he's talking to Martha. This is the scene where Lazarus has died and Jesus has come back. Mary and Martha are distraught. So he's been talking to Martha and he's just said, 
I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, do you believe this? Pretty good question. So sometime back, I don't know, I probably missed this the first 40 times I read it, but I thought to myself, well, how might I apply that? And I began to think, okay, well, if you're, if you're just reading through the Bible, maybe taking your annual tour through the Bible, and you're just reading it, ask yourself, when you see something, and it kind of gets your attention, you ask yourself, do I believe this? Now you have to come up with a very important understanding of what it means to believe. Because biblically, that's different. We can say, I believe. Well, yeah, I believe the earth rotates on its axis, and so we have what we call sun up and sundown. That doesn't seem to affect my behavior very much. But if I believe in the biblical sense, it has, it has definitions like trust and things like that. And as you probably know, same Greek word, just one's a noun and one's a verb between belief and faith. I believe, I have faith. Okay, good. So you're reading the Bible and you read something that maybe you think, oh, I'm not so sure. Well, what did you just do? You just said, I don't believe. But if you do believe, here I think is the significant thing is there is an identifying response. I used to tell people back as I spent a lot of time in this, as a financial advisor, show me your checkbook and I can give you a pretty good idea of what you believe. Now, we don't use checkbooks very much anymore, but same idea. How are you allocating your resources? That tells you what you believe. And time and energy are your two main resources. Okay? So, the other one's kind of interesting, goes back a little bit to the, the one of the three. But this is where in uh, Genesis 16:8, God is talking to Hagar, Sarah's maid, that she had just been dismissed by her mister, Sarai, at this time. And he said, where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? That's a good question, right? Where have you come from? What's your past look like? What's your circumstances? Where has God put you? Why has he put you there? But more importantly, where are you going? So it's, it's interesting that in Judges, I think that's, turned around a little bit, and it says, where, are, where have you come from and where are you going? It's where are you going and where have you come from? Either way, same thing. So that's a good, good question. What are your goals and plans? Personally, I learned early on from wise men, you gotta be careful with goals. They just simply said, if you wanna set a goal, just make sure you don't have to use other people to accomplish it. So I got a little more tentative about goal setting. Plans, that's a big one. I actually kind of analyzed my prayers and I think what I learned was I was asking God to endorse my plans. And in the wonderful quote in Jeremiah that so many people like to use but never consider the context, I think it's 2911, I know the plans that I have for you. Oh, those are interesting pronouns. I know the plans that I have for you. Are those different than my plans? Quite possibly, quite possibly. Okay, so only thing I wanna suggest is as you go through those, it, you, it's always very important what is the context. What's the context going on when those questions are asked? Not just the immediate context, 
but the broader context, and ultimately the broadest contrast context, which is the whole counsel of God. I think that's Acts 20, 27, maybe, where Paul says, I did not shrink back from delivering to you the whole counsel of God. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but we're now going to, well, actually, before we address this, another important question title, I want to spend a little time on some other aspects that I think relate to these important questions, looking at it from a little different viewpoint. So it's just in keeping with the idea of what we might gain from the process of trying to answer God's questions. I would suggest as the Bible does repeatedly, and in particular in the book of Proverbs, we should be hoping to gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding. An interesting thing in the book of Proverbs, it's usually in that sequence. Not always, but most of the time. So that's part of the sanctification process, right? They all have a purpose and a place in that, on moving us towards being conformed to the image of Christ and progressing in our relationship that he's designed and defined for us. So the discussion of, of that just subject in itself would probably take two or three of these kind of sessions. So what I want to do for now, interestingly, is forego knowledge, just talk very briefly about wisdom and spend a lot more time on understanding. So first of all, if we're going, Dave's going to put this on the screen. Proverbs 4.7. All, all these are from the NASB, unless I tell you differently, by the way. Proverbs 4.7. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. I had to think about that one a little while. But... The, the thing that I think is significant to me, at least, is the relationship existed here between the two, suggesting that understanding proceeds from wisdom. In other words, wisdom has to kind of be in place, and then we can begin to work on understanding. So then, let's, from a different perspective, but I think importantly, let's read and look at Luke 24, 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. It's interesting. If you go back to the original King James, it says, and he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. New King James says comprehend. So I got interested in the difference in that. I came across this definition as I was doing some research, and we'll read that definition because there's some key terms in that. Comprehension involves the mental process of arriving at a conclusion or result. Understanding stresses the fact of having attained a grasp of something. The former involves something complex, something we find difficult to grasp. Okay, so there's some key terms in there. Mental process certainly is one of them. It's a mental process. I'm going to talk about this a little more, but one of the first things I heard, and it was actually from Walt Henriksen, I think it was probably, whatever, 40 plus years ago, is that God is not product-oriented. He's process-oriented. And that's, that's what Jerry was just talking to you about. It's all, Christ said on the cross, it's finished, right? God said at the end of six days, time to rest. But what he has the plan for all of eternity, he's already mapped that out and we're just seeing it unfold and we're participating in it that way. But we have a problem because that's a process and we're product oriented. 
And we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works because that's what we think we're doing. We're coming up with some kind of a pro product for our lives. Kind of like, you know, we're going to leave a legacy. I, you know, Solomon and Ecclesiastes will kind of pour cold water on that idea. But that's, that's what we do whether we realize it or not. But he's not product-oriented. He's process-oriented. The product's already been determined. So I was thinking about that, and I just had to go back and think about this idea of comprehension a little bit more. Understanding stresses the fact of having attained a grasp of something. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But the other one involves something complex, something we find difficult to grasp. So let me just suggest to you that generally we use questions as a mean of gaining information or clarification, or maybe even more so finding answers. Said another way, we're seeking to resolve something. But you know what happens when you resolve something? You no longer have to walk by faith. So you have to ask yourself the question, just how badly does God want me to resolve these issues? How, how, does, how badly does he want me to resolve this? And I would suggest if you, if you take the approach to the Bible, you're going to sense some frustration. Because if you find what you think is an answer, probably what's going to happen is that's going to bring up some more questions. And that, and that cycle is not going to end. It just goes on and on like that. So you think, well, wait a minute. What, what is his intent? Well, I think that's exactly what his intent is. He wants us to walk by faith. Perpetual dependence on him. So is there any value in the process? Yeah, I think so. Because God wants us to make the effort to think seriously about what the Bible says, even when you can't make sense of it. I don't understand. But he wants us to make the effort. Why? Because it's still going to teach you something about God. It can, it can teach you something really simple, like, well, he is really complex. It's difficult to understand, especially when it's, when it's our idea of understanding. But we want to think about it in the, from the con context of 2 Timothy 2 because there's another really significant thing about understanding. And you, if it sounds like I'm hammering on understanding, hopefully you'll see later why. And that comes from 2 Timothy 2.7. And I'll just read it or quote it. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You know what he just said? Understanding in a biblical sense is a gift. It's not something that we just get a lot smarter and then we get it. No, it's a gift. But again, that's biblical understanding, right? So we, we can be more comfortable with the fact that, well, maybe what I should be doing is asking God to give me understanding and where am I going to get that? That's why he sent his spirit to indwell us. Probably recover that, cover that again, but it's, that's a significant thing. So it comes through the Holy Spirit. So I believe what we gain in the process is to realize that knowing and understanding God, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. Trying to do it on our own? Go ahead. So, any thoughts or questions? And there's a session after this that I hope, again, the questions come to somebody else. All right? Okay, so now you may be thinking finally, I want to share some thoughts on the message title. 
of the other important question, another important question. And you may be seeking, or you may be looking at different translations, but, but, but I'm, if you can, turn to John 138, because that's where the question is. And oh, by the way, 138, and if you happen to be looking at a red letter version of the Bible, you may notice that this is the first words of Jesus recorded by John. This question. And the question is, what do you seek? What do you seek? He asked that question of two men who are not specifically identified, but we know they were with John the Baptist, and they were to later follow and become his disciples. But I spent some time trying to see if the scholars had an agreement on that, and surprisingly, but not, they didn't. So we'll just leave it to believe there were two men who became Jesus' disciples. Note the response to their question. When he says, what do you seek? Rabbi, where are you staying? Okay. Another, another response that may be totally legitimate. Maybe they wanted to be where Jesus was. That's good. Maybe they want to be identified with him. Well, that's good. But you really think Knowing God a little bit, that was at the heart and soul of his question. What do you seek? So we're going to spend some time on various aspects of that question. Okay, just, just for a little lead-in, here's some brief details I came across. I found the words translated seek occur 215 times in 203 verses in the New American Standard, 43 of which are in the New Testament. There are 10 different words in the Old Testament that are translated seek. The two most common verbs are, have the following definitions. The first is, denotes seeking someone's presence in the passive use, something thought for or examined. And the other, many meanings, the most, theologically, the most theological meaning involves studying or inquiring into the law of the Lord. In the Greek New Testament, the word for the verb most often translated seek is defined as to seek God means to turn to him, to strive humbly and sincerely, to follow and obey him. That comes from the Complete Word Study Dictionary New Testament. So with those brief comments, the big picture question is, what is the most common answer to what do or what should you seek? It's a little bit like the Sunday school thing where the if you just say Jesus, you're going to get the answer quite right most of the time. This one is God. What, what do you seek? The answer most of the time is God. Again, 215 times it appears. So I want to look at some of these passages a little more specifically and with Dave reading them and putting them up there. We're going to start with Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Yep. Always, always good to think about the caveats, right? The conditions. What's the condition? You'll find him. What? If you seek, with, seek him with all your heart and soul. It's kind of like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a pretty high, it's a pretty high uh, ladder to climb to get to that level. Okay. What about the next one, Dave? Psalm 14, 2, 
The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Okay. You can understand, highlight understand. If there are any who understand, by the way, that comes also that you'll find that in Psalm 10, 53, and, and Apostle Paul picked it up in Romans 3, 10 through 12, which is where you might recognize it coming from the most. Okay. Other references. Go ahead. Proverbs 28, 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. That should be a little bit of motivation incentive. Those who seek the Lord understand all things. Remember, biblical understanding. How's that, how should we approach that idea? It's a gift of God. How do we, how do we start accessing the gift? Seek. God on that basis for that purpose, if you will. Okay? So there's that, how can you believe this, excuse me, um, that verse leads to another and possibly the most telling issue on the question of what do you seek, which is self-seeking. So we're going to talk about self-seeking a little bit. What about the next one, Dave? Second Chronicles 16, 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Okay. I think we got that out of turn, but that's all right. We'll ask ourselves this question, because this comes up over and over again. What, what, what and when do you seek becomes a big question. And what he's saying here is they didn't seek God. They, he, they sought the positions. Interestingly enough, in the Bible, you see over and over again, especially as, they, as, as the Israel's beginning to move into the process of taking over the promised land, okay, and, they're, and the, you know, they'll have a couple of successful forays into taking over some, eliminating some, one that God once eliminated, and then all of a sudden, they'll think, okay, we got this. That's the new one, right? We got this. And so they just dive right in, and it's a catastrophe. And that repeats itself over and over again. And the primary exception of that rule was King David. Most of the time, he would ask God, okay, here's what we've got in mind. What's going to happen? And God would tell him one way or the other. Right, go right ahead. Take them on. But if not, you can't. So I'm not sure how we jumped across the screen, but in any event... Um, because it talks about those uh, on self-seeking. I'll just read these to you. For they seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2.21. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And by the way, if you notice, there's not many, relatively speaking, not many a seek in the, in the New Testament. But those are both New Testament versions. And never seek the peace or prosperity all your days is Deuteronomy 23.8. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Always a good question. When you think you're seeking, what is your motive? If you think you're seeking God, what is your motive? And may, you may find out, as I have, that it's self-seeking. Okay? So, where are we now? Okay, you just, I just read them for you. 
Good for me. Okay. So now some practical implications. These are what I call them, practical implications of what do you seek. So start off with, you can turn, if, if it'll be helpful, if you turn to Matthew 6, 25, 34, that's an oft-looking place that we go. And um, interestingly to me, most of the time we go there, and again, what you'll hear people say about Matthew 6 typically is what I call the solution to most of what he talks about in this section, which is verses 25 to 34. We're going to focus on that for just a little while. So this is, this is what I'm calling the problem, uh, the solution. I'm probably not going to get that far, but uh, I, have a, I have a thought that maybe we'll hear something from Winston on that tomorrow morning. So the word that is that what I'm focused on will be different in your translations, but it'll be something like worried or worry or worrying or anxious. And typically the more modern translations use anxious. And that, that word, that Greek word, appears five times in, those, in that section between 25 and 34. All the same word whether it's worrying or worried or whatever, it's just, it's just tenses, but it's the same word. And it's fascinating to me that in the, in the complete word study dictionary I was just talking about, the, the definition of that Greek word begins with to care. To care. He just said worried, worrying, anxious. And the Greek word is started out by being defined to care. So for example, Philippians 2.20 says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. That phrase, be concerned, it's that same Greek word. So here's, here becomes the question. When you look at these various things, you kind of see in a, a, a pattern developed. I'm talking about passages that, that have this idea in it. Be anxious for nothing. All those kinds of passages. They have this, this element to them of, what are, what are we talking about? Well, how do we go from care or concern and very quickly arrive at worry, anxiousness, maybe even fear? What, what is taking place that, and, and <laughs> I've been through this a few times, I'm, I, th I think you have too, so what is it that's causing us to go, to go there? And I want to use this Interesting, I always like this word because to me it sounds like, it sounds like what the definition is describing. And the word is perseverate. Is that a fun little word that you all know? Well, good, because I have a definition for it. The definition is to fixate or focus one's attention on a thought or thoughts. To focus one's attention, to fixate or focus one's attention on thoughts or thoughts. Have you ever spent time examining when you get into this, I, this kind of a perseverating. It's not a care or concern issue anymore. It's worry and anxiousness. And how does that look? Well, you'll, you'll spend some time on it and then you'll think, well, let me think about something else. And you'll come right back to it. And you'll, well, let me think, no, you'll come right back to it. That just goes over and over again. I think I was doing that last night before I went to sleep. I don't know what I was thinking about. But that's what happens. You can't get that out of your mind, right? And we also find out sometimes in our dreams, we'll, it'll come up there as well too. We're fixated on it. Well, once again, it's a, it's a good study for you. I'm going to suggest there's some things going on there 
And they're very important for you to understand. But just as important to that is thinking about, well, let me just examine what's really on my heart and mind when that's happening to me. When I just keep recycling on the same thing over and over again, what is going on in my heart and mind? And I'll give you a clue. I think there's three principal things that are taking place. But you, but you need to think about that because it's very telling of how we go from care and concern to being anxious and fearful. And that's why the solution that we talk about in, in verse 33 is so important because he's pointing out, okay, don't do that. Don't, don't be anxious. Don't worry. You know, when you say be anxious for nothing, he's actually saying, there's no reason to do that. I've already provided a way for you to keep yourself out of that position. All you got to do is follow the little pattern that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to encourage you to try to figure out what that pattern is. So I want to I come up with three things, and I don't know where I got these, to be honest, quite frankly, but I've, I've thought about them a lot. Just three things on this subject. The first one is, have you considered that anxiety is unbelief? I mean, it's suggesting self-reliance, right? And isn't the focus on self? Isn't the focus on us? Yep. What about this one? Anxiety can cause your focus to be on the worst possible outcome, not a plan to resolve the issue. Does that sound familiar? And once again... Just over and over and over again, we're just thrashing this thing to death. And we're so busy thinking about that that we can't think, well, I wonder how I might actually get this fixed. How might I get this taken care of? And that leads us to the third one is, do you think you, what you are worrying or anxious about is beyond God's capacity to resolve? Well, we must be thinking that or we wouldn't keep worrying about it, right? So you see how insidious that is. We just get caught in this little vortex and we go round and round and round because what we're really saying is, gosh, I better try to figure this one out on my own. I don't, I don't know that I need to be asking for help on this. I'll just figure it out on my own. That's usually not a good plan. So just for the obvious point, in verse 25, if you want to look at that, it's the one probably most of you are familiar with. But what I'm going to suggest he's talking about there, do not be worried for your life or what you're going to wear or what you're going to... You know, and the reality is, looking around this room, I'm going to suggest there's very few of us in here that see those are not... I mean, who's worrying about that? I mean, we're all dressed. You know, I'm, we've been eating pretty good. So what's, what's the big deal? Why, why get anxious about that? Well, because these things are essential. And the one on life is a really big one. But if they're essential, then why do we think that these little things that we're fretting and stewing and doing all that stuff with are something that God can't help us with? That he can't resolve those for us, take care of them for us. So just belabored that a little bit, but... That's what I'm suggesting. And again, the solution, hopefully we'll get to hear about that later.
So, we find ourselves self-seeking, and listen to the definition of that because I think it's valuable. It means, it's a Greek word, erythia, selfishly ambitious, contentious, used in a bad sense of those who seek their own mercenary interest. That's what self-seeking is. So, how do we relate to what we seek as that relates to God's will for our lives? Seem to be kind of interrelated questions, don't they? What, what, what's God's will? So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go where I like to go, which is in those devotionals back there on the table. I'm sure several of you have one or all three of those. I believe the first one, The Diary of a Desperate Man, was, was printed in 1999. I've been reading those, whenever that is now, 24 years every day. I'm still learning a lot from reading those books. So we're going to just let Walt Hendrickson tell us how to think about what we want to think about, because otherwise I'd mess it up. So this comes from day 185 of the... Burgundy one back there, warnings from people not listening to God. And you've probably seen pages of that before if you happen to get Dan's Friday emails. Okay, Dave? Warnings from people not listening to God, day 185. <clears throat> there exists a distinction between the perfect and the permissive will of God, between what he wants and what he will allow. By this, I do not mean that God allows in the general sense of man exercising his will, such as sin and rebellion. Rather, his permissive will deals with what he will allow short of sin, but outside of what he deems best for you. You may enter God's permissive will if you wish, but understand that when you do, you have told him that you know better than he does and what your best interest looks like. This may in turn result in your crossing the line from submission to God to willfulness. I would suggest for your consideration what I've been trying to do for a long time now is somehow indelibly burn that on my brain and heart, the last paragraph. Because what you're saying is that he knows better what your best interests are than you do. And oh, by the way, you may have heard this, but that's a really good way of thinking about what went in in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. And we think about what's the big deal about the knowledge of good and evil. Well, think about it this way. What he's really getting to is the knowledge of who gets to decide what's in my best interest. That's the distinction. So he's saying that if we're going to think about the will of God, yeah, and there's all these kinds of fancy terms, dispositive will and provative will and all those kinds of things. But here's a really good way to look at it. It's what, it's what he allows in the sense of, okay, if it's not sin and rebellion, if you're not willful about it, okay, I can allow that. You know, David came up with the idea that maybe God needed a temple. That's, well, I don't need a temple. But, all right, you can't build it. Solomon will have to, but that's all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll allow that. But what David would have done had he heard this verse was think to himself, well, what's, what's in my best interest is because God says I don't need a temple or because I've really got a burning desire to build God a temple. 
Can't answer that question for him. Can't answer it for you. But you have to be able to think about that that way. So there's another factor in the middle of that that I call familiarity. There's a, seer, there's a sense that we are okay with God. <clears throat> that we have reached a comfort level in our knowledge of him and, on, and in our relationship to him. Well, you know, I think, I think I'm doing okay. Yeah, I've got several little things on the checklist and I can check them off. That's why that little thing in your thing is so, in your book is so good about the two different views. Yeah, well, at what point in time do we think we're comfortable enough to say, I think God and I are, you know, you, you hear some of those kinds of things in country and western songs. Yeah. The, the one I was listening to recently is, uh, you know, where, where do I find God? Oh, you know, out in the woods, whatever. Well, here's another thought. What about the Bible? But that's what we get into when we start thinking about things that way. We're, we're okay. And I would suggest that is probably going to have some effects. It'll be, an, you'll be an, it'll be an enemy of gratitude for you, of thanksgiving. Why be thankful? Why, why be grateful? What about submission? Or the ability to worship in spirit and truth? I think you're going to find yourself viewing his commandments as negotiable. Simple little trail because we think things are fine. As the old saying goes, hunky-dory. So let's look at John 4, 27. Just if you're three chapters over, if you still had your, well, move back from Matthew 6, from John 1.38, and that's the first one, is what do you seek? And this is, Dave's going to read for us John 4.27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or, why do you speak with her? Okay. Could we ever get in a situation of doing something like that? You know, where folks, what, why is he talking to a Samaritan woman? Yeah, two, two problems. Woman and Samaritan. You know, us, Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. And what, is, what has to do with some really interesting things and terribly interesting things in there? She said, you know, we Samaritans worship on Mount Ebal and you, you guys worship on Mount Zion. You ever thought about what, why that was a, a significant thing for Jesus to raise? Sometime, I think you, you got to go back to Deuteronomy, and then Joshua 8, 8, I think, is better on it. There was a specific thing that went on in naming that evil and related to what the nation of Israel called it as opposed to another mountain, and then there's Mount Zion. That's, that's heady stuff, you know? And what, what they're saying is, well, why is he talking to a woman? In other words, think about what is Jesus seeking? Yeah, of course we know the obvious thing. Well, I came to seek and save the lost, right? But, but the question is, when he has you in a situation and you're thinking about, wonder why he did this, 
What about just asking the question, well, what is he seeking? What is it that he's really after here? I mean, yeah, there's, we know what the issue was. Gosh, she, you know, she figured out he was a prophet and she ran into town and told the people and they came out and it was, it was great. But, it, but how do we do that? That's the question. Jesus, what do you want? Because that's the word that gets kind of interchanged in there, right? Some translations will say, what do you want? I would say there's a little bit of difference between seeking and wanting, but that's, that's what we're trying to get at is, yeah, but, but Jesus, what do you seek from me? What do you seek from us? What is it you're really wanting? And of course, the Bible is replete with information on what the answer to those questions are, or that question is. Okay, so the other thing is um, 12, we get to listen to Walt again. Um, read, that is, what is that? That's 298. That's the last paragraph of 298. Okay. Nope, sorry. Oh, yeah, okay, you're, you're right. That's it. The issue is not determining the will of God, but rather seeking his will. To properly seek the will of God, you must, in a spirit of neutrality, come before God with an open hand, broken spirit, and contrite heart. After seeking the face of God, ask the counsel of proven men who love you and watch for your soul. Now that kind of runs counter to the norm, doesn't it? I, that, yeah. We're, we're, you know, are you, aren't you diligently seeking the will of God? He says that's not the question. It's not determining, or excuse me, not, aren't you determined trying to figure out what God's will for your life is? You're trying to determine the will of God. He says that's not the best, that's not the, for, that's not the foremost question. The question is, what, but rather, what, is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Not what are you determining, but what are you seeking? Okay? And... It's interesting, he uses that little phrase in there, broken spirit and contrite heart. You may well know that comes from King David's penitent prayer in Psalm 51. When he gets over there, it's one of the latter verses, 18, 19, somewhere along in there. Fascinating thing to me is I was, I was thinking about that because uh, he says in uh, verse 10, I believe, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. I was thinking about two, two little songs you may be familiar with. And one of them is older, Change My Heart, O God, Make It Ever True. Change My Heart, O God, May I Be Like You. And then there's another one that says, Create In Me. And the reason I think that's interesting is because I think 1 Samuel 13, somewhere along in there, it says right after Samuel had anointed Saul, and he's you know, prophesying, doing those kind of things, and it says God changed his heart. Change my heart, O God. He changed his heart. But if you follow what Saul did from there, he didn't have a really good track record. And I don't think he got to the point of having a broken and contrite heart. But I have a hunch if we ask God to create in us, as only he can do by his spirit, a clean heart, we may be able to arrive at a broken and contrite heart. I don't think we're going to get there otherwise. And I think that's why that's, I mean, that's a powerful, powerful psalm. Because he's just finally figured out some things and he's pleading with God not to, not to have to rehearse this all over again.
So let me move us along. Time-wise, yeah, I think we'll be okay. Okay, so one more, th 13, read, uh, if you would, those three. Proverbs 1, 5. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Understanding, okay. Proverbs twelve fifteen, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Okay. Proverbs nineteen twenty, Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days. Boy, that first phrase, now that's really good. Us, we're really good at that, us guys, aren't we? Listening to counsel and accepting discipline. Those high on your list of things you would say, well, here's something I really excel at. I'm really good at accepting, accepting counsel, really good at that. And I just love discipline. Even, even when he says, you know, that, that may be a little more beyond discipline you think. This is not just a scolding. This can be a scourging. Okay. Well, just got enough time to do this. I was, and bless Dan's heart again. I think, I was thinking about this. I've been, I started going to the retreat in Colorado and Lost Valley in 1978. So I don't know how many of these I've been to around the country, but I think that verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, has been used at least eight or ten times that I know of in conferences over that time frame. And it, it's only within just very recently that I thought, you know, I ought to ask myself, how might I be a little circumspect in really getting that done? How might, as, as, I, as I land to handling accurately the word of truth, what might be some pitfalls or roadblocks or little hurdles that I've got to get by in doing that? So I'm going to give you some ideas that just have come to me that I figure they, the saying is misery loves company. So you just uh, listen to this and walk through it with me, if you will, and, and we'll get down to closing. So I want to read, um, start with verse uh, 14, these two passages out of uh, Deuteronomy. So we'll start with those. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Okay. And those, that I think is God just saying, you know, you may have missed this when I mentioned it earlier. So I'm going to tell you again. Same thing. Don't do this. Don't add to or take away from my word. And in case we missed it, just to think about how important I think it is to him, the last two verses in the Bible in Revelation are basically a benediction. The first, the two verses next to the last two verses is this. You want to read that, Dave? Deuteronomy twelve thirty-two. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. Okay, now go to Revelation. Revelation twenty-two eighteen through 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy... God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Seems to be pretty serious about it, doesn't he? Okay, so where, where, where might we fall short of that command, of that warning even? 
And I go back to that question I asked earlier. What about the, do you believe this? We've already heard 2 Timothy 2.16, or 3.16, excuse me. All scripture is inspired by God. One of my favorites is Psalm 119, verse 160. There's not too many verse 160s in the Bible. And it says, the sum of thy word is truth. Now that would be sum, S-U-M, meaning all of the various aspects collectively together is truth. Okay? And, and by the way, in, in, in that context, an exception to the rule does not negate the rule. Okay? And the other thing is, I think a lot of people would be better suited to say S-O-M-E for some. Some of thy word is truth. Okay. So either one of those can be on the side of adding to or taking away from the word of God. Because if you're, if you're going through and picking and choosing, I have a hunch that's, that's what you're going to run up against. Okay? So, so does our view of the Bible or concept of God reflect what is gained by being transformed by the renewing of your mind? In other words, when we say we have a view of, of we have a concept of God or we have a, a worldview, a biblical worldview, what do we mean by that? Can we say, and, oh, by the way, it's accurate. My concept of God and my view of the Bible are accurate. Okay. What about the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God? Happy is the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves. What about what we don't approve? Is there any tendency maybe to leave some things out that we don't approve of as we work our way through the Bible? Oh, it doesn't, you know, maybe we can slap a cultural term on that or something. Can we take away from or add to passages of truths we find challenging like antinomies or hard to understand by defaulting to speculation? which can lead to erroneous convictions or potentially heresy on the issue of get, that God is addressing. I was long-winded. What did you say? Can we fall prey to just thinking, well, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. My reason and logic can't take me there, so I'm going to move on from there. What did I just do? I just took away from the Word of God. What about pieces of passages? I mentioned that earlier. And the one that I find interesting is we try to, and it's valuable to do some proof texting. But as I said earlier, sometimes we do pieces of passages. And, and you don't have to be terribly creative. And if you have you know, a good Bible app, you can get really good at this. If you'll just go to various places, take a short little phrase or maybe a sentence and you can almost support any view that you want to have from the Bible. It's not that sophisticated. We've got a lot better equipment to do it with than we used to, so we can get a lot better at it. But what's that look like? Might we be adding to or taking away from God's Word in that process? Yep. 
What about Peter's words? Knowing that this first, this is Second Peter 1.20, knowing this first, no, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own private interpretation. interpretation. Well, what about understanding or even articulation? Well, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you a better way to say that word. Well, what does that look like? It looks like you could, you could put some private interpretation on that. Here's probably one of the big ones to me. How do you make allowance for confirmation bias? It's kind of the elephant in the room. Here's two definitions, very similar, of what confirmation bias is, in case you haven't run across that term. The tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Second one, the inherent tendency to seek approval or verification of your existing conclusions. Think about this a lot because again, going to Leather's retreats, that verse that Dan started off with is almost always there. Burians, 17, 10, and 11. And we, we can, the one I hear repeated almost all the time is, well, we need to go to the, data, the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. I think we missed something. The first part says, and they listened with great eagerness. And one of the ways that you can be sure that you have confirmation bias is the inability to listen with great eagerness. I might go so far as to say that's an issue of teachability. And I think about guys like John Lennox, Vodibachum, some of the contemporary guys, and they'll tell you the enormous amount of time they've spent looking and reading and studying the views other than the ones that they have. Some of them extreme, like with the culture we're in now. And I, I'm sad to say I don't do enough of that. And what am I doing when I don't do that? Confirmation bias. And it's, it's fait accompli, it's a given. You're gonna find what you're looking for. So you, you, you come at that with, you know, some, some rather significant issues like what I call products of inputs. The, the, the effect a culture has on you, whether you recognize it or not. What about presuppositions and predispositions and preferences and convictions? So to get to the point, because I'm not trying to create paranoia here, or circumspection, but not paranoia. So how do we not add to or take away from if we've not asked the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct our thinking when we're looking at God's word? would say the odds are against us. I want to close on the what do you seek thing with these, with these three or four of, on the issue of counseling and then I'll, I'll shut us down. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Yep. That's why I get a little nervous between the, when they use the term want I don't, if we, were, if we were honest, I don't think when we get up, you know, just the first thing in the morning and say, God, I, what I want is to seek your face. But we should, right? Okay, go ahead. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, I shall seek your face, Lord. 
Go ahead. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. This last one will sober you a little bit. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will search for me. I was thinking about this song, and if you may be familiar with it, uh, Keith Green wrote it back in 1980, called Oh Lord, You're Beautiful, and I did a little editing on it because the, the repetition in that song I think has value, but just the phrasing that he uses. Oh Lord, you're beautiful, your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first help me to just live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown. For my reward is giving glory to you. Oh Lord, please light the fire that burnt bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. So what's my conclusion? Well, you may have guessed by now, I'm going to ask two more questions. And this is from personal experience again. Just in the Lost Valley retreat alone, I think I've been there over 40 times. And if you've, ever, if you've been there, it's 13 miles up on a trail road to a dude ranch, and that trail road's interesting. You know, you get to the, you get to the one lane on a slope like this and about a thousand foot drop on this side, and you begin to wonder why you're going up there or coming down. But I've come down that, and it's usually about two hours before I'd get back to where I was living at the time. And man, I had, I had it wired down, the changes I was going to make. They were going to be substantial, and they were going to be permanent. I was just convinced of that. And after about the first 15 times of failing miserably doing that, I figured I needed to change my strategy a little bit. So here's my question to you. What will be your plan for applying what you learn from your time here? And the second question, maybe more importantly, who will hold you accountable for implementing and maintaining that plan? Thanks for your time, man. So um, thank you, John. Are there... Before we break, in a little bit, we're going to break, and um, just so you can be thinking about it, we're going to go straight out those doors and then out the glass double doors and walk up the stairs, and we're going to go out on the lawn. And uh, Ted McAdam is our resident organizer for photos, and he's done it for years. So uh, Ted is going to help us out there. Um, <clears throat> So, but the easy way, so we don't get in the way of the caters and and what they're doing out there, we'll just go straight out those doors, but we'll do that in just a little bit. I have on here questions and answers um, on materials that we've already talked about here, and we have our we have our speakers here um, and uh, are there any are there any questions that anyone has uh, on their mind or their heart right now based on based on what has been uh, discussed so far. Now, <clears throat> on Sunday, 
we have an official panel question and answer. And that's usually, it's just really a great panel. So, but, there, but sometimes we don't have enough time to get to all those questions and answers. So uh, anyway, and we have, the, we have extra mics here too. So does, does anyone, have a, anyone have a question right now? Uh, yeah, I have a quick question. So earlier we were talking about what do you seek from God or what do you seek within God and why? But I guess my big question is, does our reason for seeking God or motive for seeking God really matter? Or should we be seeking something greater, like God's reason for us seeking God? Good question. Well, where's John, where's John Hartshorn? Okay, since he spent a lot of time on this, we'll get a mic over to him. Someone, is there another mic we can get down, get over to John? And he can answer that question. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I, you know, I thought about that, and I think, I think the answer is yes. I think it's, I think it's both. I think we can, we can get, that's, that's why I use that second illustration of, of, of when the guys didn't ask Jesus. They did not ask him this, this question. So obviously we, we're asking God those, those kind of questions. We want to seek your, we want to seek what you want. We want to seek your face. We want, and that's why I said the best answer is God. We want to seek God. But occasionally, we, we can flip that around because our tendency is to say, once again, here's, here's kind of what I think you're thinking about on that. And it's sometimes better to say, well, why don't you tell me or give me some ideas of, of what you're thinking and then let me respond to that. It's just a matter of reversing the order a little bit because our tendency is to think, okay, well, I'm going you know, to comply. I'm going to do this, but, I, but here's how I think I ought to go about it. I think that's the distinction. That's why I tried to use the various issues and approaches to it. But th that come close to answering a question? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hi. Um, so in a similar fashion, I mean, my question is probably fashioned in the same manner, but in a different way as far as um, when you've been brought along the road on the path and the walk with the Lord is uh, when you get to a point where you start to want to, what? how do you distinguish the idea of, are you of when you're truly seeking what God wants for you and as opposed to what you're seeking for yourself, how do you know in those moments? Because at some point you have to be able to be granted that discernment. How do you know it's the discernment that you're receiving or is it just your mind attempting to seduce you into believing that you have discernment? Yeah, first of all, I think that's why um, that second paragraph that Walt wrote is so significant because he said it's not an issue of determining the will of God. It's a It's an issue of seeking it. So, again, I think we come to God knowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, with all kinds of preconceived presuppositions. Pre you know, here's, here's where I think I am. Here's what I'm doing. Why, why don't we start by seeking God rather than trying to find an answer that we're looking for? And that's really, it's, it, you know, don't, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I think that's exactly sometimes what we don't want to do, is just sit and listen. Ask God, what do you seek? Well, quit talking and listen. And I think he may tell us what it is. Otherwise, we're going to be telling him what we think he wants to think. Does that help? 
Okay. Is it fair to say that God's not the author of confusion? So if there's confusion, then we need to rest in that. Yeah, but and and but 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 we we have to hope that we understand what the confusion is. I mean, it's, it's like I say, it sounds silly, but sometimes we we have, a, you know, our understanding of God's understanding, we're not very understanding. So when we think, well, here's the confusion, who's who gave us the insight to tell us that's what the confusion is? It was based on our presupposition, our preconceived idea of what this was supposed to look like. John, at the end, you mentioned the plan yep so what is the plan and the second part is my question to you why are there so few men that don't that do not want to be held accountable when they come up with a plan we're good at coming up with plans but who is going to hold us accountable why are men reluctant have other men hold them accountable in your experience well first of all on on the plan I I think that's the issue we think that we're really good planners and I'm not sure we are personally just from my experience because we we see that more from a worldly perspective than I think and that's why I say that verse from Jeremiah is so significant to me God says I know the plans that I have for you. And so it's the same thing, you know, when our relationship with God, God defined and designed the relationship. But if we're really honest, what we're thinking of, God is, here's kind of the way I'd like this to go. I'm hoping you'll endorse it. But this is, this is the way I see how the relationship's going to work. We're off on the wrong foot to begin with. Okay, so, so in a way that plays into accountability because we really don't want to come up with being transparent and being honest and saying, okay, well, I'll just admit that what I just said was I had the grand plans, but I, hadn't, I didn't make arrangements for somebody to say, all right, we're going we're gonna to check you out on that. And we don't want to be accountable primarily because we know it's going to raise the ante quite a little bit on us. And secondly, we're males. We don't, we don't want to be accountable. We don't, you know, when, some, when it says you're the leader in your home and, and when it's all said and done, I'm going to come down and talk to you as the, as the man of the house. We, we don't like the sound of that. You know, the woman now gave this to me or whatever. So, so it's, it's almost inherent in our fallen nature to say I don't, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a really good illustration without trying to be too long. We were sitting in a, in a retreat. Maybe some of these guys were there. I don't know if they'll remember this. It was quite a, probably 20 years ago in Lost Valley Ranch. And Walt was speaking. And I don't remember what the question was. But he said, okay, just, just a second. Let's just stop. And let's just go around the room, five or six or eight guys, and say, what do you want heaven to be like? And it was fascinating because, you know, they had their all different little versions of that, like we all do, because it doesn't tell us a lot about what heaven is like. But, you know, the thing that I picked up on in every single one of them was I don't want there to be accountability. 
It's interesting because um, I was reviewing some old notes. This is some time back, but I was reviewing some old notes and listening to some messages, and some of them just happened to be comments on accountability. And um, they said that one of the greatest things that they had in their Christian walk was other men that held them accountable. You know, but it's the you know it's that small group of men that we know about, and they made that comment, and I'm going, wow, you know, wow. Yeah. So, and and by the way, it's rare, and I've also watched, and it's hard to maintain. You have to commit to it. Another thing we don't like very much is commitment. But and and you, those two key things, transparency and commitment, doesn't do any good to have an a, a, an accountability group. If you, if, if you don't say what needs to be said, both in reporting and in responding. Thanks, John.